Welcome to Seed Phrase, a podcast speaking with people close to art, blockchains, or both. I'm Simon Denny, an artist who unpacks stories about technologies. For each episode, I ask a guest to choose 12 words, their personal seed phrase, which gets minted as an NFT. Like the key to a crypto wallet, the seed phrase unlocks our conversation. For this episode, I spoke with Mitchell F. Chan, an artist whose work hones in on the medium-specific potential of blockchains. He's known for drawing connections between NFTs and the longer history of conceptual art through works such as Digital Zones of Immaterial Pictorial Sensibility and Lewitt Generator Generator, digital art projects that are in dialogue with canonical mid-20th century conceptual artists Eve Klein and Solowit. Another important figure to Mitch is Andrea Fraser, perhaps the icon of contemporary institutional critique, a more recently emerged subgenre of conceptual art. In this conversation, we also unpack her thesis that what artists, curators, and other actors invested in art really produce is belief, and discuss how that could be analogous to parts of the wider crypto world. Mitch makes some bold propositions, from arguing that redundancy is the basis of meaningful art to reframing crypto's lack of intrinsic value as its superpower. Along the way, we also talk generative art, speculative bubbles, and croquet clubs. Thanks very much for for having me here, Simon. Very briefly, I'm an artist who has worked with technology as either a medium or subject, and usually both in the same piece, as we are wont to do, for... I don't know how long. I mean, I mean, 15 years, a graduate of the Art Institute of Chicago's Art and Technology Studies program. Um, so when did you graduate? My, what year, actually? Oh, it, yeah, I graduated from the Art Institute at like 2011. Mm-hmm. So I just missed uh, two artists who came through there who have been, I think, very important to you know, my understanding of technology-based art. I think John Raffman would have graduated from there, I think, just before I got there. Yeah. And uh, the game developers at Cardboard Computer, uh, who most famously made Kentucky Road Zero, which is another huge influence on my current work, oh. I think graduated just before I got there. Oh, wow. I mean, I'm already going to stop you because um, I know John very well. And also, I mean, he's a quote-unquote Canadian artist from Montreal and a peer of mine that I met early in the kind of post-internet days. But you're also a Canadian artist, Toronto rather than Montreal, I guess. Do you know John at all? Have you had interactions with John's work beyond seeing it online? Or I do not know John at all huh. beyond seeing his work. That's really interesting because I think John was somebody who really helped frame for me what was important about making art with Web2. You know, So he was like the Web2 mm-hmm. artist kind of interlocutor in some of my early moments. But this other paper, this is actually something I'm not aware of. Do you want to underscore what they are or who they are? Oh, I mean, yeah, we'll get there. So Cardboard Computer is a game development company that Mm. was founded by, um, oh my goodness, I'm going to be so embarrassed uh, that I don't remember their name. The the lead programmer is a guy named Jake. He was an SAIC grad. Mm -hmm. And I believe their sound guy is a guy named Ben Babbitt. Mm -hmm. There are three of them. And when they were at SAIC, I know Jake was making these little video game artworks. And I'd actually, I met him one time at a party and I found out about his game artworks and, and I, I played one and it was just this small little experience. I still remember it was called I Can Hold My Breath Forever. <laughs> and it's a little sort of dreamlike narrative, you know, about a character holding his breath underwater. And it was sort of, you know, part 
I mean, today we might almost call it a generative art, like visual experience, you know, part, part poetry. Um, and it was just this artwork that was just really nice to interact with that used the framework of game mechanics and interaction, you know, as a way of, of drawing in the viewer. And I thought it was really lovely. Uh, I just thought it was just a really lovely little experience. I always filed it away. I mm. thought, oh, that would be a nice thing to do. Mm. Years later, I discovered that they'd created this game called Kentucky Route Zero. Um, Kentucky Route Zero is, I mean, it's very much presented as a game. Mm -hmm. It's very much marketed as a game, uh, published as a game. You can get it on PlayStation. It is, to my knowledge, not been exhibited in a museum. Right. Although it is, in, in my opinion, one of the greatest artworks that's been produced in my lifetime. Oh, wow. Yeah, I mean, one of the reviews I read about it said, imagine if the great American novel of the 21st century were a point-and-click adventure game. Right. And it is a heavily narrative adventure game uh -huh. that is about, you know, flyover country and about a community that has been, like, decimated by a, a mining corporation. And it's very much about all of these characters navigating with their debt and trying to find a place in this kind of, like, late stage capitalism. Wow, very and realist. It's, it's, kind it's of, beautiful. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. And it's all done like very much in like the magical realist style. Mm. They tip their hat early to uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez mm -hmm. as a, a huge influence. Um, it's really phenomenal. And then they do also like a lot of experimental stuff about, you know, interactive uh, and virtual presentations of art. Yeah, I mean, for, for, for my money, if you're interested in art, it, it truly is one of the masterpieces of, of my lifetime. Oh, that's so amazing. Okay, I, not to stall too much, you were going through your, <laughs> we just stopped you at art school. Um, after art yeah, school. Yeah, no, remember, I did the thing, I did the thing where I said, oh, I'll, I'll, I'll go on for hours about other people's art. <laughs> I'm a slippery fish, Simon, yeah. you're not going to pin me I down. I am going to pin you down. So after Chicago, you moved back to Toronto or to Toronto? Like yes. So I graduated from the uh, Art Institute of Chicago in 2011, moved back to Toronto, and I've been making work, you know, largely with or about technology mm -hmm. since then. Um, I have also, and this is, I think, very important to my approach to crypto art as well, have worked in public art. Um, yeah. large-scale pieces in public plazas, public parks, and things like that. And those were the pieces where, you know, it's much more difficult to incorporate technology. Mm -hmm. But that was sort of, you know, my, my professional thing. And so in 2017, being an artist who's interested in technology as, as, as subject and medium, uh, you know, I discover blockchain, and I realize that this is, first of all, something that we as artists need to you know, reckon with to think about the fact that this is a social phenomenon, yeah. you know, tells us something about our society. And therefore, it is a really fertile ground for making art about it. Right. But the technology also brings with it these incredible affordances that allow us to rethink how we are making and distributing art and really what an artwork can be in like its expressive and commodity forms. So in 2017, you know, I become interested in that. I start to look at, you know, how I might make an artwork out of blockchain. I don't know. How do you make artwork out of crypto? And so I, I, I gave it a shot. Yeah, great question. I mean, and that artwork you're just describing is, of course, the Zones of Immateriality, a piece that resonated with this early work of Yves Klein, one of the first claimed artworks kind of explicitly addressing finance and, I guess, the kind of speculative potential of artworks and also, yeah, this claim of like immaterial aura and value and those connections, right? Um, I reread a really interesting 
document that you produced at that time, um, which sort of described the piece, which is kind of like a a white paper called the blue paper, right? I mean, I don't want to give too much away, but it's interesting because I just did a conversation with um, Terra Zero, who also produced a white paper as conceptual art proposition in a similar period, actually 16, I think, that was when they wrote the initial Terra Zero white paper. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about, yeah, I mean, more about that piece and how it began and what form it takes? Sure. So in 2017, this paper that you're talking about, the blue paper, is probably the more significant aspect of the artwork than the token, right? Because, you know, it does that thing that I think, you know, conceptual art has to do, which is that you kind of got to call your shot, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So little background is 2017 and people who are around remember there was something that we call the ICO boom initial coin offering booms all these companies that you know wanted to be companies without putting out initial public offerings of stock or like really you know actually having to have meetings with investors who has time for it when you're building the future so they'd make these initial coin offerings and you could just buy tokens that would offer, you know, some sort of, you know, functionality in whatever product they were going to build or, or, or not. Build. Or even potential functionality, came... right? Like, uh, yeah. yeah, 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 right. exactly. Functionality, TBD. Mm-hmm. And um, they all had white papers, but eventually they all started being, you know, the yellow paper and the orange paper, whatever. So I wrote this long essay, it was 33 pages long, and it was about the value proposition of tokens and how they related to value propositions of conceptual art, specifically using e Steve Klein's uh, project, The Zones of Immaterial Pictorial Sensibility, as a model. And so it was called The Blue Paper. And so this essay, really, in throughout 33 pages, I just sort of run two narratives in parallel. And one of the stories that it tries to tell is the story of the development of, of Bitcoin and Ethereum. And not so much the technological development, but the development of a culture and of a faith and of a collective promise Mm -hmm. that builds around those coins. Mm -hmm. Because what is fascinating to me as an artist about Bitcoin is that, and look, this is an often cited critique of cryptocurrencies. This, well, it's not, you know, it's not intrinsically valuable. There is no physical referent. You know, Bitcoin doesn't relate to a bar of gold in Fort Knox or, or anything like that. And or or a political that, power hegemony like the U.S. or whatever, for that matter. Exactly. Not even a specific structural hegemony right. that you can point yeah. to. And this is fascinating, mm-hmm. right? Because that means that the only thing that can inject value into this digital currency is a collective faith, is a collective promise, mm-hmm. right? And, you know, with Bitcoin, that sort of builds around the cult of personality of Satoshi Nakamoto, right? And even in Ethereum, it sort of builds around the cult of personality of Vitalik Buterin. Mm. Um, And and then it it sort of grows after that, right? It takes on libertarian ideologies, but a Bitcoin is a receptacle of faith. Mm -hmm. That is what it is, Mm -hmm. all right? And then, so I'm telling that story. And then I'm also telling the story of Eve Klein and his Zones of Immaterial Pictorial Sensibility, who I think is just a fascinating and, in my opinion, the most important artist to look at if we're trying to find an art frame of reference for crypto. Mm-hmm. Because there are two things that Klein does in his career that I think are, I mean, they're unique on their own and put together, I think they're really unique. 
One is that his career is a constant struggle against the physicality of art, right. right? Which he considers to be an encumbrance. And so even like his early works, right, where he is, we'll talk about the blue monochromes. Sure. And an oft overlooked fact is how he mounted those, right? He had custom mounts that would push them off the wall. So they'd be pushed about 12 to 18 inches off the wall because he's not comfortable with the fact that this is just a thing on the wall. That makes it too much of an object and less of an experience that invades your space. Such an amazing detail. And yeah. <laughs> it's so important. And then like let's talk about that blue. Mm -hmm. Sure. It's his own it's his own he patented the process. He owned a, a color of blue and you know relationship of that blue to you know ownership and market is that's interesting. But the quality of the blue itself, the detail of it, right, it is so flat as to be infinite, right? Right, And so that blue is there to dissolve the picture plane, to make it not be a thing, mm -hmm. right? This is how I explain it to people. I say, if that blue had any sheen to it, right? If it weren't so flat, you would get those specular highlights and that would ruin the, you would always know that you were looking at essentially a screen at an object, but you don't, so it isn't. So he is truly trying to break away from the physicality of his art. Mm -hmm. And the reason he's trying to do that is because he's a very spiritual artist and he believes that an artwork is also simply a receptacle for faith, yeah. right? In the larger project he's trying to create, which is his life, his cult of personality, and the thingness of the artwork is really distracting from that, that he's just only trying to sell you a promise, all right? He's only trying to sell you what he would later call, like, you know, a pure sensation, a pure sensibility. Mm. So that's really important. We can already see a connection between that and cryptocurrency. So as I'm sitting here as, an, as, as, a, as a smooth brained person with some interest in art, <laughs> trying to understand Bitcoin and Ethereum, I'm like, oh, this, this makes sense. Like if this could be true in art and if we could accept this as a masterpiece in art, surely, you know, there can be some validity to it in, in cryptocurrency, right. even if the politics and ideologies don't line up. Sure. But then, so that's thinking about the technology as a subject mm -hmm. and how that lines up, mm -hmm. right? But then there's thinking about it as a medium, mm -hmm. answering that question, well, what can I do with cryptocurrency? What can I do with smart contracts? What can I do with blockchain that, you know, advances, builds upon some ideas about art? So the second thing Klein does that's really important and I think ex even more unique about him is that he is willing to honestly engage with the ways that his work is financialized. Right. Okay. And very few artists do this, I think, in a genuine and sincere way. And make it kind of we, work as part of the narrative, right? I think that's another important part of how I would frame that too. It's not just that he's being honest about it. He weaves it into yeah. being significant and substantial and like something, like a property to work with, right? Like that's... Absolutely. Yeah. The honesty about the market is funny, right? A lot of artists are willing to fold that into their persona. Yeah. Right? I mean, that's like a very Andy Warhol thing, right? It, of course, they understand that importance of the relationship between the artwork and the persona and the market. It, the market feeds into the persona. But very rarely does it actually feed into the artwork, mm -hmm. right? And so we'll go back to the blue monochromes, right? Another oft overlooked thing about them is that, you know, when he first exhibits them, they're all aesthetically pretty much identical, but they have different price tags on them. But time and place, it's the mid 50s. Yeah, it's the mid-50s is the monochrome. It's Paris, right? It's, yeah, yeah, it's Paris in the mid-50s. To be honest, I can't recall where he first exhibited the monochromes. 
I should I should know this. But this is the art world context he's working in, right? Like he's a mid-career yes. artist in the 1950s in Paris, and these monochromes kind of also speak to an emergent conversation about abstraction, et cetera, et cetera, right? Just to like, yeah. Exactly. I mean, we say mid-career, I mean, still very young. Like when the monochromes come out, he's still in his 20s. Hmm. Because in 1958, he released the zones of immaterial pictorial sensibility on his 30th birthday oh, wow. in 1958. And so the monochromes predated them. And I mean, we'll get to those, but yeah, with the monochromes, just putting different prices on them, what he was doing was essentially a test, right? Where if everything else, like, you know, visually, aesthetically is identical and the price tags are like, so everything else is a control. The price tags are the variable, mm. right? He's testing this idea that, you know, how people buy them, what people are willing to pay for them changes that sensation to people. Right. Right? Some people would prefer to have the most expensive one. And it has a meaningful impact yeah. on their perception of the piece. Right. It has cultural value. Yeah, exactly. And it's easy to do that experiment with like a sort of, I mean, like you can have like a bit of a shit eating grin when you do that, you know, <laughs> prove us and make some people want to pay more for this, right? right? But after research, I believe in his sincerity. Yeah. And so that's an honest thinking. What he's pointing out there is that ownership matters, right? When you're creating sensation, that is a valid sensation. Yeah. And so it's a valid thing to think about and experiment within the artwork. And it's a, And so then by the time we... G it's a structural property of the speculative artwork that artworks, you know, were already to a certain extent at that time, but have become more and more so since then, right? Like this is maybe something also relevant, I think. Absolutely. And so I think that all of these things come to a head. So, right. So let's get back to the essay, this blue paper that I wrote. So in 2015, I've told the story of Bitcoin. Then I'm telling the story of, you know, Eve Klein doing these experiments and then them culminating in his zones of immaterial pictorial sensibility, which is also sometimes just called the void. And I should probably call it the void as well. Yeah, the other one's a bit so of a word salad, piece, I think. <laughs> so. Yeah, I know. So, so we'll call it the void from now yeah. on. And so, right, it's 1958. Uh, April 28th, 1958, exhibition opening at Galerie Iris Claire uh, in Paris. And so finally, he brings both of these ideas to their logical conclusion, these ideas about, you know, immateriality and these ideas about commodification. Viewers enter that space and it is completely empty, right? He claims that he's now completely dissolved the physical aspect of the work, right? right? There is only sensation, but... You know, so you can create an invisible artwork that's only sensation, but it still has to be an artwork, yeah. right? It still has to be an artwork. How do you prove it's an artwork? Well, I mean, as you know, as I know, the artwork has to have a commodity form. Yeah. So he takes that commodity form and he puts it in a certificate. And so there are these paper certificates. And when you buy this invisible artwork, you get the paper certificate, which, you know, he wants to make very clear, it contains only the property rights to the artwork, but none of the sensation, right? So he, right. these things are sort of attached to each other, but very distinct. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, in Klein's own words, solves the problematics of art. Mm -hmm. And I look at this and I say, this is what we can do with blockchain. Right. Because a token is the perfect receptacle for the commercial aspect, the commodifiable aspect of, of an artwork. Yep. And if we can accept that these things can be separated, the artwork can be anything else. It can be a performance, it can be a JPEG, yep. it can be a movie file, all right? Um, it can be an idea. And so as a proof of concept accompanying this essay that I think lays out the homologies between cryptocurrencies and Eve Klein, I make a token and I modify, you know, this sort of standard fungible 
token contract that exists, I realize, okay, I'm going to have to change this. I'm going to have to make it so that, you know, these are all artworks. So each token has to be like identifiable so people can trace their individual token yeah. and we can remember how much they paid for it. So that's really important. Yeah. I mean, I think so I modified that and maybe, maybe yeah, as, I had to make a contract with a token that was non-fungible. Exactly. Maybe that's the thing to like lean into because I think this is a very important part of why what you did was um, at the time quite a contribution in some ways to the medium, right? Because you know, NFTs would exist later on. The non-fungible token standards on Ethereum would be kind of put into place later that year, right? And then earlier in 18, maybe. But you were saying like, okay, we have this way to make issue coins, mm -hmm. right? Issue a kind of fungible token, something like a, a US dollar on top of Ethereum. Like anybody can do that. In fact, there's companies doing that left, right, and center to kind of make their own tokens that you can kind of collect and become, you know, uh, part of their little economies that they're producing. But you say, okay, let's make 101 of these and let's make each one of these able to be a different amount of value, right? So you sort of, it, that's a sort of a kind of a way to say what you did, right? Absolutely. So, so yeah, to rephrase that, I, I just realized that in order for a token, a blockchain token, to function as a receptacle for the, you know, commercial, the commodifiable aspect of an artwork, you know, it needs to be different in a couple of ways. Mm -hmm. We need to be able to track each individual token. Mm -hmm. I never used the word fungible in 2017. Right. It was not a word right. I was thinking about. People were about. just saying tokens. What did I say? I called them non-divisible. Non-divisible. Yeah, right. right. But so I made sure they were, yeah, they were non-divisible so they couldn't be fractionalized. Mm -hmm. Although in the paper, I said, I promise you some fund manager is going to try to fractionalize this someday. That's a thing that happened. Yeah. I was pr proud of calling that <laughs> shot. And... Um, I was really proud yeah. of that. But I also realized that, okay, we just need to document that each token needs to have an individual number, which I called the addition number. Mm -hmm. Later on in the standard ERC-721 contract, it would be called token ID. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, it was a modified smart contract that made blockchain tokens appropriate for transacting my invisible artworks. Right. And then the deal, you know, the idea was that these were attached to nothing but, you know, invisible artworks, promises distillations of faith, essentially, yeah, as Eve Klein did. And the other connection, I think, structurally between Eve Klein, which I think is a, is worth kind of like pointing out more explicitly as well, because rereading the paper data, I was reminded of the exact mechanics of the project. Um, Eve Klein's artwork, when you bought it, you got a receipt, but it was also understood that the receipt would be burned to get the real artwork, which has no form, right? And, and the kind of ceremony of burning this would be done by the artist with the collector, and then it would forever actually be totally immaterial, right? That was the ritual that went from the kind of commodity receipt to the kind of true immateriality of it. And, you know, in some ways, again, that's so appropriate for the translation you made because you buy a token receipt, right? It has an image uh, that is actually a photograph of a paper receipt, which, uh, which sort of resonates with the early Klein receipts, right? There's a formal connection between those receipts and yours. Um, and then there's an invitation to burn them on the Ethereum, you know, like as in burn a token, um, which would then again make the kind of thing totally immaterial. So, so you, you do count a token as a, a kind of material receipt in a way in this network. And I mm -hmm. think that I think that resonance is um, maybe not as often talked about as I think it, it's so relevant and interesting structurally. Yeah, this is. I mean, it's fascinating. It says something I think about the relative importance of that experienced form of an artwork mm. and its you know commercial property rights. It, with Eve Klein, you would get the receipt and there is documentation of 
I, I believe there's documentation of three people That's right. burning their receipts at the River Seine with Yves Klein, yeah. and he would throw half of the gold he'd received as payment in the river, right. and through that ritual, right, the artwork achieved its final form, yeah. right? Like that paper token, it was sort of like an inter, like it was, it was like this intermediary form yeah. on the way to completely getting rid of the material aspect. Yeah. It was like the cocoon. Um, and, uh, right, you would burn the receipt. And, of course, like, the receipt would have some display value, right. of course. Like, you could hang it on your wall. Yeah. It would be a nice memento to look yeah. at, right? And then, so, my project, of course, mimicked that structure. As you say, you could burn the token. And now think about it. That token has no display value. It's not an artifact. It truly is just property rights to the piece. And yet, like, three people burned Eve, Eve Klein's piece, and so far only one has burned oh, really? his digital version. Oh, wow. Yeah. And, but one person like, has burned it? nobody has done like, it. Like, uh, who, who did it and when did they do it? <laughs> one person did it within, literally within two minutes of the project going live. Ah, okay. Right? Long before it was apparent that this token would have any commercial value. Right. Interesting guy. He was like literally the only stranger on the internet who had found out about this project and was watching it in real time. Uh -huh. Like logged on, like the second the project went live, bought three, burned one, and then I never heard from them for three and a half years. Wow. Well, and I always had wondered who that was. This is an amazing uh, time to kind of go into the chronology of that project, right? Because I remember speaking about this mm. with you before, but maybe you can describe the experience of launching the project, which was in collaboration with an art venue uh, in Toronto, right? And then maybe talk about how that initially went mm -hmm. and then talk about how things changed later when you sort of reissued the project. Um, and uh, I think mm -hmm. this is a chance to talk about the speculative value that it has accrued. Sure. So the project launched in, in 2017, right? Yeah. And I was, it was August 2017. I'm pretty excited about this. I think this is an interesting idea. And I released the project at InterAccess Media Arts Center here in Toronto. And I did a lecture. I did like this hour and a half long lecture about crypto and art. And then there, live in front of an audience, I unpaused the contract so that it was live for minting. And I minted the very first token there in front of everybody. And, you know, it was kind of interesting to some people, but also maybe not <laughs> because, you right. know, not, nothing much really happened. Mm. Um, I was not at that time, you know, particularly, you know, it, it remains one of my great regrets mm. that... At the time, there were artists who were really interested in blockchain as an artistic medium and as an artistic subject, right? And you were one of them. Mm -hmm. And there were, you know, a bunch of people hanging around further field who, who were interested in this stuff. And I mean, it, it is like a huge mea culpa that I, I just didn't find them. Yeah. Right. And so this I also thing regret not of... finding you, by the way, because I, you know, when I curated oh. proof of work in 2000, uh, 18 and at the Schenkel Pavilion, it would have been incredible to have one of these in there. And it's one of my large regrets that somehow you weren't on my radar at that point. So, hey, it's 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 okay. It happened, you know. And I, I'd like to think that you know, with, with all those people later on, I mean, the best thing about the NFT boom was that I I did find those right. people eventually. And yeah. had none of that stuff happened, I wouldn't have. Right. But you know, it, anyway, and so this thing just sort of 
died, mm. which was fine. I mean, I like I say, I've always been fortunate to be a working artist. I had other work to do. I also, to be completely honest, like I had to get out of the crypto headspace. Um, mm. When I was making this project, right, because uh, I, I'm interested in the the emotional the relationship that people have to these coins right and i wanted to know that firsthand and so i mean this is a thing that you know i haven't talked about a lot but in preparation for that project i wanted to know the culture by doing it so i was day trading crypto for six months oh, wow. before i did that right wow uh, which was a crazy time to be doing that stuff but it was like i would just i'd spend most of my day you know just kind of like looking at charts click buy click sell be on reddit trying to understand like the culture and how mm. crazy invested not just financially but emotionally people were and that was exhausting and so honestly by the time i was done that project i was ready to get off the ride yeah like really right uh um and have you closed those so, text, so, text yearbooks uh, on on those day trading days? I well, closed the text yearbooks. Yeah, like I don't know, like with uh, when you file taxes in Germany, there's kind of a moment where oh. it can be contested or not, and then you have to like go and back and forth with the finance department. Oh and... no no no! I was so terrified. I think that was when I quit. It was when like the, like taxes were due. I was just like you know what, this is like ruining me. Like it's absolutely ruining me. Because <laughs> yeah. um, look, man, charts, the number go up, number go down game is the most addictive video game in the world, right? right? And I'll, I'll, I make no qualms about it. And I was just like, look, sell everything, hmm. all right? And then I looked at the accounts and I just paid the maximum amount of tax possible and right. then just decided that I wouldn't think about it. Right. I mean, so you got out actually completely speculatively out of also all your holdings at that point. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's because it was just like, it was. it's really emotionally draining yeah, to be in in that world and i felt like it was important to do because yeah. i don't like to i don't like to come in and comment on stuff and say you know like without giving it a shot sure right yeah. like and, and being in it as much as you can so yeah anyway that's how that went and so i was you know pretty happy that's one of the reasons why i wasn't looking for anybody else in crypto art after i was done like i was i was truly emotionally drained mm. <laughs> and um and so then nothing much happened except in 2020 after a period of two and a half years of dormancy there was a single transaction on the contract hmm. which i didn't notice because i because i wasn't looking at the contract at the time right. there was a single transaction from someone named hxrts.eth this person <laughs> had the good <laughs> yeah because you know uh. this person had the good sense to use their ens address and uh anyway but i didn't notice it at the time because I, I wasn't watching the blockchain and that was in 2020 and then you know yeah that was in 2020 sam, and then and you know sam uh sam, sam hart. hart yeah Sam Hart, yeah, well known to you and, and, and now known to me as well. Yeah. And then somebody, you know, my friend tells me, you know, towards the end of that year, hey, just so you know, like these NFTs things are happening. And I said, <laughs> you know what I said? I said, what's an NFT? non-fungible right, token right he's like no it's like it's like, it's like you know art like on tokens i was like nah nobody cares about that i already did it man nobody cared i had the same <laughs> it's so funny because i had the same situation right after like being a, an early kind of very curious person like after proof of work closed uh 
and people would sort of uh, people liked that show, but mainly people in the art world who I was getting feedback from. And then after it closed, like then the conversation went on, and people were like, "Oh, you you did something about this like crypto thing?" Oof. And it was kind of like an embarrassing <laughs> thing in the room. Like, and I was like, "Yeah, I know. It's kind of yeah. Well, you know, I, I thought it was important <laughs> at the time. You know, like I had these kind of conversations <laughs> about being slightly embarrassed that I even expe- you know expended so much energy paying attention to what was happening in the space. And then again, when 2020 happened again, and and uh, all the crypto people were deep in their quote unquote DeFi summer ecstasy. I was like, oh no, don't touch that. You know, like that's <laughs> like, that's, that's going to be a problem. Like it's, I've seen this happen before. It's going to crash. You know, and uh, it's, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so I, I relate to the sentiment. Yeah, so I like, and you know, I have that very jaded, yeah, yeah. very jaded response. Like, no, nobody could be caring. But I was like, but thank goodness. So I looked at the contract, and thank goodness I had that one transaction mm-hmm. from hxrts.eth mm-hmm. i say i'm gonna find this guy why was this guy interested is this like right and it turns out it's sam hart you know a very smart very curious very generous person who like perfectly straddles the crypto space and the art space yeah. right he's done curation but he also you know works you know he's literally like a builder in the blockchain space and he, you know, generously, and, and I discover that he's done some writings and presentations on this stuff. Right. And this is really interesting. Yep. So I looked up some of his essays and I like discovered, oh my gosh, there are like these other artists who are doing this stuff. And I, I was actually embarrassed. Like, I, you know, again, I was embarrassed not <laughs> to know them. But, you know, talking to him made me realize, okay, actually, actually, this would be really interesting to re-engage with. Hmm. Because now I see that there, there were always people there. Mm-hmm. And so, you know... I come back, I find some people. But now here's the thing. It's like what you were talking about. You know, you did proof of work in 2008. Which, by the way, Sam was involved in, and he also was involved in uh, yeah. initiating with me. So he was one of the kind of curatorial nodes in, in the conversation that made proof of work. So this is also very relevant to that uh, moment. Yeah. And so I don't know if you had the same experience where, like, I discovered that, you know, at that time trying to do that, it was, you know, you're trying to talk about crypto to art people. Yeah. And art people are like, oh, oh yeah, okay. No, all right. You know, I didn't have that. I had like, oh. <laughs> okay. Okay. So even worse. And yeah. maybe, maybe I had that too, but these people were, were being polite. I don't know. Right. But then re engaging with this, and I find that really. The way I was presenting, the audience to whom I was presenting that work was backwards. Hmm. And when crypto people started discovering that project, the Digital Zones project, right? It turns out that telling crypto people about art is a lot more rewarding (laughs) than trying to tell art people about crypto. Well, because look, crypto is this kind of weird thing. And the people who are into crypto, they a lot of them tend to be just full-time rabbit hole like chasers right. you know who are interested in deep diving on stuff yeah. they love details they love like constraints that are kind of interesting they like systems thinking they're like they understand networks they understand social production right i don't know i'm just kind of reflecting some of the things that i find exciting about that audience uh, exactly yeah. like they're kind of a fun hang on discord right. like truly right. right and so you know i was just lucky enough that a few people started just to discover this project in the crypto space and they were largely actually people in like the crypto punks discord was kind of who started it Uh off right like the like like it was some of the first people were you know one of the major crypto like actually the mod in the crypto punks discord his name was dave oh wow um snowfro 
right? Very well known from Art Blocks. He's one of the also one of like the first people to get one in in 2021. Mm. Like just because because they're just the people who are interested in stuff on the blockchain and curious, and they want to read stuff about it. That you know, look, they have this genuine interest connection to blockchain, and they're interested in different perspectives mm -hmm. that change how they think about it and that and, and that can communicate the you know the value proposition of blockchain on a you know conceptual level or a philosophical level or whatever mm -hmm. and so once the project becomes not about telling art people about you know the homology with crypto but about telling crypto people about the homologies with conceptual art mm. it spreads like wildfire people are really fascinated with this the way that the project is set up is Everything was following uh, Klein's structure. Klein was supposed to release his series, and he sadly died too early to do this, but he was supposed to release these artworks and receipts in series with checkbooks, each of 10 editions, right? right. 10 editions at a time. And each with each checkbook, the price of them doubled. And so my contract was set up hard-coded the same way, so I could only release 10 at a time. And then when these things were coming out, they would sell, like, in 90 seconds. Yeah. Even when they were getting very, very expensive. And this is January like 2021 when this kind of reboot moment happened? No, this is like, no, this is maybe happening like May 2021. Oh, shit. Right? I didn't realize it was yeah, that late. This is all happening. Huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I, 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 I was waiting. Wheel, I was really spacing yeah. out the releases. Right. Yeah. Some of them, it was starting in January 2021, and then I, I stopped. I held on. I was like, I just want to make sure that these things don't go too fast. Huh. Got to, got to spread this out. And so I think the last ones got sold in August. It was between January and August of 2021. That's so crazy. When all these primary sales were because happening. I was already aware of the project by then, but I didn't realize I could still mint or whatever. If I guess of that uh, in that situation, and I guess also maybe it says something about. I mean, I'm kind of an ideal audience for this thing as well in some other ways, but I, I don't have one. Um, and I didn't mint one at the time. And I certainly can't afford the resale uh, versions. <laughs> I think it's really interesting that like one of the phenomenons of that year and of crypto art in general, which I think uh, goes through these extreme boom-bust cycles because it's kind of tied to this um, boom-bust cycle of the underlying architecture, let's say, right? Social architecture, but also kind of like financial architecture is that, I mean, at least this is my experience, when a lot of things happen, you can't keep track of half the shit. And, you know, I was also trying to, like, build my own project at the time, and I sort of had one or two th I was still learning exactly what made sense as a, as a networked art project. Like, I'd seen some things happen really well, because, uh, like, our mutual friend Harm van der Doppel's project, uh, which did very well that year, came out also in August, I remember. And Yeah, that, Mutant Garden Cedar. Yeah, exactly. And that that was another one that I missed out on. I'll never uh, forget you know, the day I, that I, came I was out. Like, I was about to click a yes, and then I was, like, I was on holiday, and I just went to the beach, and then it was done. <laughs> and then oh, it, it would have been it would have been tough anyway. It was that piece. The whole website went down because it was so in demand. Right. And so I did this thing that that Arm, Arm was kind of upset about, where I just minted straight from the contract, like without seeing it, because uh. I'd seen some that. Like, right. like he had this idea that it would be this gentle. They'd all come out and people and could you could see choose, which one right? Like there's a preview it. thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it was not like that. So I'd seen like the first hundred that had come out, and I thought these are beautiful right. and innovative. Right. And but uh, I'm 
darn, the website's down because everybody's trying to get them. So I, I like minted straight from <laughs> from the smart. contract. Really smart. It's one of those jerks. Anyway, anyway, to go back to the, I don't want to derail this yes. chronology because I think it's really interesting. So yeah, so th- they sell out as soon as basically you you drop them. You do them in several lots, uh, which relate exactly to the structure that they're dialoguing with. This historical structure of Eve Klein's mm-hmm. releases. What then? Right. So then once they're out. Right. So, so then once all 100, so like I said, I was slowly letting the 101 trickle out. Mm-hmm. Right. And there's, you know, like narrative going on around it. Right. It, it is just like even stuff like the fact that they were doubling in price every every 10 tokens. Mm. It was like there, you know, people were like, oh, this is like the first NFT with like a bonding curve hard coded into the contract. Like, oh, <laughs> no, yeah. Like, but that's really interesting, you know. right? Because the, the, the historical revisitation of this early interaction with speculative properties of the kind of commercial potential of artwork as speculative asset that actually never got to be tested properly, right, which is something that you underline as well. Now, suddenly, given this new technical environment and a reboot um, uh, and a translation, let's say, um, by you, gets to be put into this speculative dialogue in a completely different way and a very effective way, a very resonant way, it sounds like. Yeah, and and look, I I will only take credit for the stuff that I should take credit for. Like, I did not have any idea that that would be the effect. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I didn't have any idea that that these would ever actually sell in, mm-hmm. in, in primary. Even when I was making the contract, look, the final tokens were priced. If you keep following that, you know, bonding curve of double, 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 means the final ten tokens were twelve point eight. ETH each to right. buy primary, right? Now, when I made the project in 2017, that would have been like worth, uh, I don't know, like a thousand dollars or something like that, which I figure like, no way, like no way that's ever <laughs> going to happen, right? Uh, but, you know, I had to do it because that was the rule. And then, you know, when they find, start actually selling in 2021, that 12.1 ETH each is like 15,000 US dollars each. And like they're selling in in minutes, right? Yeah. Um, and not only are they selling on like within minutes, but then this thing happens once they're out, like they're out, like they're done. Actually, that that last tranche of tokens that was twelve point eight ETH each, they sold out on the same block that I unpaused the contract. Wow. So people were just lining up, click, 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 hoping to get one. And so because there had been this buildup, right, there had been this buildup and pressure on the secondary market where there were no secondary market sales because people knew that it would still be possible to get them even at a price of 12.8 ETH each. Right. They didn't know when I was going to do it. Mm-hmm. They didn't know when, like, when they, but they knew there was still the chance they could win that lottery. Mm. So the secondary sale, like, like was, so the secondary market was, there was a constraint on it. Someone had put a lid on it and all this pressure was building up. Mm. And then finally when they were done, they were done. Mm. And it was going to be impossible to ever get them at primary price. And it immediately shot that that lid on the secondary market just exploded. Mm. And so those people who are lining up clicking to purchase, you know, those 12.8 ETH tokens in the same block, you know, one of them turned around and like they bought it for $15,000 and within four hours sold it for $60,000. Right. (laughs) Like because of that buildup of pressure, and so, you know, and so like these things became very hot commodities. Mm. I mean, and this all like sort of culminates in like, you know, Justin Sun, the blockchain, you know, uh, 
I don't even know how what what to call him at this point. This sort of blockchain prominent, maven. invisible, narratively gifted, uh, sort of uh, clown-like collector, right? I don't know. Is it... <laughs> yeah, very very prominent crypto uh, maven, yeah. right? His people are in touch with me, and he had been very interested in collecting historical NFTs mm-hmm. at that time, mm-hmm. right? And you know, his people said, "Okay, look, Justin wants to know why this thing just all of a sudden increased and in, like the secondary market exploded overnight." And you know, I told him the story, and he, then he decides, like, he's you know, got to have them, got to have them, right? And and this was this is the dumbest thing I did in that whole boom cycle. I said, "Well, I, I don't really think I should I should sell you you any from my collection. I don't know I don't know why. I just I don't really know how to be you know an artist with a secondary market. I feel like you should just go get them from other people. So he goes and spends a ton of money just kind of like buying them up on on OpenSea and then yeah and then everything sort of happened and Sotheby's happened and as as a commodity it became you know really 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 hot. Yeah, exactly. And I think I remember the most visible uh, moment in terms of that speculative value, I think, was this moment when Sotheby sold one for a million dollars, something like a million USD. Is it something like that? Was, oh. it, was one, it, was, it was hammer price was 1.25 million. 1.25 million. And then it was also, that was, I think, a really beautiful Sotheby's moment, actually, in some some other moments in the Sotheby's foray into um, digital assets were a little more clumsy. But the, one of the nice things about that auction, I think, is there was also an original receipt from Yves Klein on uh, on sale during that auction. Is that correct? Or was it adjacent no, that to was Because you wrote a little that intro That was a to little it, bit huh? later. Okay. Yeah, right. a little bit later. So th- this was – so, I mean, if you want to talk about, like, interesting – a circular economy, yeah. I know that's the wrong term, yeah. but I think it's really fun to use business terms incorrectly, yeah. is that the interest in these, right, there were a number of people who were holding like original Eve Klein works from this original project that oh, was referencing. Receipts, right? Like pre, yes, of, pre-burn, yeah, of course. pre-burn receipts. Yeah, yeah. Pre-burn, right? Yeah. And who were getting in touch with me, like essentially asking if I would help them, like, pump their bags right? <laughs> like i mean seriously they were like okay so your digital like versions of this eve klein is like worth a lot of money i was like look i have these physical things like look man we could do something like do any of these crypto whales that you know like want to buy this you know and I'll, wow. I'll, I'll cut you in on it right yeah and i was like well, i don't know i mean i think it's cool that you have that it's cool <laughs> i mean can i see it right. I, I don't know yeah and then when one of these did actually go to auction, yeah, like Sotheby's asked me to write, you know, an essay to accompany the the, the auction, mm-hmm. which I was happy to do. Like, you know, talking about how, because, you know, I truly believe that this is an important reference point mm-hmm. uh, for, you know, crypto art and tokenized art, which is like a really important narrative in art right now. Mm-hmm. And so I do genuinely hope that the emergence of tokenized artworks helps like legitimize and elevate the legacy of this artist who you know, I feel very passionately about. So I was happy to write the essay. But yeah, yeah. So, and then all of a sudden I'm I'm pumping the trad art bags. Yeah. <laughs> that becomes very my job. So again, like I think, I mean, one of the, one of the things I love about blockchain and, and I've talked about this with a number of the people on this podcast as well is the time-based aspect of it. You know, it's truly time-based media um, to use a kind of slightly out-of-date term. And I think this is a really amazing thing where these historical projects get kind of revitalized. And, um, and you know, I was very interested in that when I did my dot-com seance uh, project as well, which was done that same year, but a lot later in the hype cycle. <laughs> 
um, and uh, and uh, uh, about you know uh, revitalizing old business ideas as kind of new possibilities given this new architecture. So I saw a resonance between those two projects anyway. But this is so amazing because the you you truly did raise the value of the original project and perform the original algorithm properly. You know, I hope that um, that Klein is is resting in his grave much better than he was prior to. Uh, 20, 2021 now. <laughs> um, yeah. So so amazing, Mitch. I mean, we spent quite a lot of time already on this really yeah. watershed project, um, but you do so many other things. Yeah. And I, I don't want to tie you down to, to that one extremely spectacular project um, because you made some other NFTs during that year as well. Mm-hmm. You did something else, which I would say like um, – Played with this time and format aspect as well, where with Artblocks, one of the more successful quote-unquote generative art um, release platforms, you made a piece that activated a another artist that gets often um, brought up in conversation with algorithmic art, uh, Solowit, where you kind of issued Solowits on digital surfaces, essentially, mm-hmm. uh, of different shapes. Maybe we can talk a little bit about that project, but just so you know where I'm going with this, I also know that you're... I've heard you speak about this project in the past, and um, you've said that in some ways you felt activating these older algorithms, so to speak, was worth doing but not worth repeating to death, right? Like doing doing yeah. a couple of versions was a good idea, but you also have other things that you want to try and other things that you think are important for the medium to expand, right? So maybe yeah. maybe we can kind of like go into those directions. Yeah, yeah, no, you may, I'm like, you know, one of those young starlets talking about how my real passion is directing. <laughs> not, not, <laughs> you know, Simon, I want your audience to know that I'm not just the art historical reference guy. Right. There are a lot of different facets of my personality. Exactly. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah. But 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 it's okay. I'll wear it all with pride or the appropriate amount of shame. It's fine. Yeah. Well, well. Let's go into that project though. Talk briefly about the sure. Uh, the yeah. Artworks. Let's talk about it. So I mean, it's so funny. And I look. What I think it is is I think that it's actually a really nice marker in our measurement of the growth of this space. Mm-hmm. Okay. I was saying before, you know, one of the first crypto people that I was interacting with was was Snowfro mm-hmm. and he was making art blocks. I was talking to him, you know, long before long before. I mean, art blocks blew up so quickly that to say long before art blocks blew up is like you're talking about a matter of like months. Yeah. Right. So but I was talking to Snowfro in the brief window of time before art blocks blew up. Mm-hmm. I was fascinated by that platform. Hmm. And I remain just in awe of it. Like the affordances of that platform, like what it does in terms of creating a relationship between like, again, the commodified expression of the artwork, Mm -hmm. you know, the sort of source code that is the artist's true medium and the way that it makes transacting an essential, like, 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 essential prerequisite for the expressed form of the artwork to exist. Yeah. It's fascinating. Right. I s- could spend a lot of time just thinking about it. And yeah. yeah, and I should just make this explicit for listeners who maybe aren't familiar with mm-hmm. it, right? The way art block, right? Art blocks is, I mean, I, I think it's not a stretch to say it's the most successful like certainly generative art platforms out there. It's one of the huge success stories of of crypto art. And the way it works is that an artist writes code, Mm -hmm. an algorithm, Mm -hmm. and Artblocks deploys that code to the blockchain. It actually exists there. So I could create a code that says, you know, draw a hundred connected lines on your screen. 
and but make the the points kind of random right all this generative art functions on randomness right make 100 random points on the screen yep. paint 100 random colors on the screen and then what happens is when you click purchase or mint on art blocks the blockchain by default creates a random receipt number for your transaction so that you can always look at it, it has to be random and you know it's this really long number and then what art blocks does is it feeds that random receipt number into the algorithm the artist wrote and outspits your work and your work is unique because your receipt number was random um but it's also like the randomness stops at that point mm -hmm. your artwork is always the same because mm -hmm. it's always using the same random number and it's definitely yours mm -hmm. so that is a fascinating relation like you literally the artwork does not exist until it is purchased that's fascinating yeah, that's so true you know yeah and the proof of purchase, I mean, it's literally the seed. Mm. Like that is the term that we use in computing, the random seed, mm -hmm. okay? Mm -hmm. Like the, the receipt of purchase is, is the seed for the artwork. So I'm fascinated by this. I mean, on top of the other great things that that platform does, which is, you know, it obviously helped find uh, an audience for generative art and, you know, which is a, a form of artwork that had been neglected for a long time. So I'm very interested in this. And, you know, I'm saying, look, I'd like to, you know, write a little something about some of the ways that this connects to previous ideas and conceptualism. All right. And again, at the time, there was not a lot of that discourse going on mm. like we gotta remember in early 2021 there were the crypto people were over on one side and the art people were over on another side raising their eyebrow and being i would just say like a little bit off put by some of these barbarians at the gate okay <laughs> yeah. I, I i mean i think that would be a pretty fair way to describe the attitude yeah but also just an awe of money art. right i think that's the other thing that the like and which is what the kind of people sale proved right is just how much weight the financial signal has in the traditional art world you know which is again not to belittle it i think everybody in our world looks at financial signals as one of the strongest possible signals to send about consensus, uh, you know, success, uh, uh, importance. You know, it's not that the art world is some, somehow especially sucked into money or whatever, but the financial signal, that type of strong financial signal says something very loud, right, in, in our oh, world. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And like, let's stay on this a little yeah. bit in terms of this, like the schism between the art world and, and the crypto mm -hmm. world, because these worlds are i mean they are comically analogous to each right. other like it is the two spider-mans pointing at each other <laughs> meme, really and what blockchain does is by virtue of its transparency is that it absolutely removes the plausible deniability that has become so important to the art industry right right of course the art world communicates largely through financial signals mm -hmm. but it's the dearth of information mm -hmm. that like in that market allows us some plausible deniability right it allows us to believe that the meritocracy is based completely on talent or skill of execution and look i'm not trying to be completely nihilistic and say that that doesn't play a factor in it mm -hmm. But, you know, it also plays, you know, a little bit of a factor in, in, in crypto art as well. Right. You know? And I would also say that one of the things about the financial signal in the art world, even though it's loud and strong, it's very hard to model and very hard to predict where the kind of where the signal is going to pop up next. I mean, of course, there's some likelihoods that you can kind of stick with, but it really 
you know, even for somebody that's been in a, a fairly central art world that's, you know, close to this financial signal for a long time, it's very hard to know where the attention span is going to go next. And then there's a lot of redundancy that gets created through the fact that that is also inefficient. And that redundancy is also where a lot of the amazing things, experiments happen in art, right? Like an Eve's client initial moment, like something of your early project that had kind of no space in a way uh, for the financial signal to initially boosted, right? Uh, I don't know if that's a fair thing to say, but I, I think there's something about the inefficiency and the redundancy being in that art system that makes it also possible for lots of experimentation to happen. Yes, I think that that's an incredibly true. And I like that. I think that's a very optimistic and accurate way to take that conversation further mm -hmm. and to talk about the benefits of like, a low information like system, yeah. right? I love the way you put it, actually, that because of the redundancies of the art market, you have some wiggle room to experiment and do interesting things. Art art is a redundancy. Yeah, it's hugely <laughs> in inefficient. So yeah, there's so much yes. waste in it um, because it's very hard to say at the time that things are being produced whether they're valuable or not. Like, it's it's almost impossible, I would say. Yeah. Um, and, and that means that lots of things get funded that are essentially not very valuable in the long term. And that means that there's all this possibility for experimentation, right? That's that's how I would how I would put it. Absolutely. Okay, so this is great. And yeah, what we're saying in... Because I started yeah. by saying that, you know, that blockchain and crypto art is just, you know, a similar thing mm -hmm. with more information and more transparency. You can always see the signal. You can always see exactly where the attention is going. Mm -hmm. You can really game it. Like, you can really game it as a collector and speculator and also as a creator. Mm -hmm. It's like you can kind of see where the puck is going. Mm -hmm. You can literally graft on a trend line. And so, yes, like my critique of the art world would be that this is just a little bit of a hyper, like of a hyper efficient, you know, art world. Mm -hmm. But then the positive spin is what you just said, is that it's in the inefficiency is where, where the magic happens. I would say so. Which I do believe. I genuinely do believe. Yeah. But so you release this project, which kind of underlines some of that, right? You take these solo it. Uh, algorithms essentially, right? For, for yep. those who don't know, and maybe you can explain this even better than I can, but like SolarWit, people in computing love SolarWit because um, it's a set of instructions that makes the artwork and the artwork can be translated onto any kind of context. So it's usually a wall drawing um, with SolarWit that it will be a bunch of uh, descriptions of how to produce the wall drawing, but he will not deliver you the wall drawing on the wall, right? So the idea is that the work is not in the finished product, but the work is in the instructions to do the finished product. And people who you know are enthusiastic about the culture around computing recognize this as an algorithm and say, "Oh, this can be a, a you know a, a so-called generative piece of artwork as well," right? Is that is that a fair? description i mean I, sort of but actually you i think you actually previously gave us the tools that we need to deflate that argument a little bit um as facile so what i was interested in with Solowit is like yes there is this analogy that you can make between Solowit as an artist who decided that the instructions were the artwork and the execution is almost incidental right, right? and of course there is an analogy there to coding. And at the time, you know, and so I mentioned that in my like little essay that accompanied that piece, um, but it's very quick because I think that's a really easy connection to make. Mm -hmm. And like, it's a little bit, you know, facile. Mm -hmm. The reason is because of course, like, you know, 
look, a lot of things are generative. A lot of things are code based now. Like a lot of things are just instructions for doing things. Mm -hmm. And before you were talking about inefficiency, mm -hmm. providing being this, this sprinkling of pixie dust, okay, mm -hmm. on the art world, like where magic was made. And the difference between um, Saul Lewitt's instructions for a human to draw a bunch of lines on a wall and a computer's instructions in the form of code for your GPU to draw a bunch of line on, lines on the screen is efficiency and redundancy, the end product of which is kind of absurdity, right? Right. right. It is in the inefficiency of the human executor that we get this wonderful tension between the finished form and the set of instructions mm. that I think, you know, I don't want to say makes it art because I don't want to be prescriptive about what art is, but I would say that makes the art much more interesting, mm. right? Mm -hmm. There is absurdity to it. Mm -hmm. There is tension between like the ideal, I mean, really like platonic ideal form of the art that exists only as a set of instructions and like the necessarily flawed execution. Mm -hmm. Whereas when a computer is executing something, there is there is no tension. A computer is doing the thing that it is supposed to do, which right. is follow instructions mm -hmm. fairly, like, you know, and sure, you can program in some randomness to it, right? So it is interesting in the sense that the randomness, which is defined, like the, the randomness is a range of possible outcomes, even if it is almost infinitely large. It's mm -hmm. a range of outcomes, like predefined by the artist, and it is an attempt to recapture some of that magic, mm. recapture some of that tension. But the tension expresses itself through collectability, mm. right? These are really fascinating thing. If you talk to like the people on the Artblocks curatorial board, when they look at one of the artworks, and I, I think this is brilliant, by the way, like they'll say that they look at the artworks, they look at a page of a hundred of them and see how it looks when, you know, a hundred of them come out. What are the variations, right? Because that variation between additions is the tension. It's not thinking about the relationship between the inefficient human executor and the ideal instructions. Mm. So it's, it's much more fascinating the way that generative art is not like Solowitz conceptualism. Like huh. that's a lot more interesting than simply saying, oh, instructions are the art, right? That's a little bit easy. Yeah. And I get a little bit embarrassed because I think that that project sometimes gets misinterpreted as making that mm. like facile connection, mm -hmm. which is, you know, not, I think is interesting a connection. Yeah. But the thing that I was even more interested in is once again, um, the like relationship between expressive form and commodity form mm. that exists in conceptualism and and Solowit in particular. Like Solowit, who was another guy who was explicitly selling the certificate of authenticity. Mm. That set of instructions was signed by Solowit. That's what the museum buys. Mm. What you do with it is your business, right? Right. The, the the certificate of authenticity was the commodity. Mm -hmm. That is what brings us back to NFTs. So mm -hmm. Solowit, I think, is more interesting to think of with relation to NFTs than to generative art. Mm. But as I was beginning this whole spiel with, like, I think it's very telling where we are in the space. When I started, you know, even in 2021, midway through 2021, not a ton of artists, not a ton of voices in this space who are trying to make connections to historical artists. And now, you know, the whole, oh, my, my generative art series is referencing Saul LeWitt. It's kind of like boilerplate stuff that, you know, a lot sure. of creators pull out these yeah. days if they want to, you know, lend some credibility to, to, to their project, yeah. which is fine. I mean, that's cool. I think that's a sign of healthy growth and curiosity in the space. Yeah, the, the conceptual art 
connection has been somewhat digested. It's also, let's be clear, been um, tried to iterate a lot from the art world side now as well. There's been a number of exhibitions that have tried to frame conceptualism and art together, some of which we've both participated in, others which I've tried mm -hmm. to make. And um, yeah, I mean, I think, I think you're right. We're at a different moment, which is maybe a good bridge because I know we don't have infinite time to more contemporary work of yours, because I would say, you know, uh, your most recent project, um, which came out as part of peer-to-peer -peer show that we did with um, the Buffalo AKG Art Museum and uh, Tina Rivers-Ryan, uh, kind of a person who's aware of all of these connections in their details, right, is Tina Rivers-Ryan. I think mm -hmm. that's one of, her, one of her major strengths is her breadth of knowledge of, uh, about historical work, contemporary work, and, um, and what's being made in the space. She curated this with um, Feral File, another kind of art world slash crypto world product in a way. Um, but you released what I would characterize as a viewer of your work and as a fan of your work is quite a different piece, which I would describe as um, an allegorical game as obviously there's a dialogue there with a historical art piece as well because it references a painting by uh, Winslow Homer who for those of you outside North America uh, who haven't come across that name he's a very prominent painter of the kind of um, antebellum period um, which is part of the narrative that you draw on in your piece right so it is in a sense connected to your older pieces and the fact that it's kind of a reinterpretation of an existing work but the mechanics of that reinterpretation i would say are quite different but maybe you want to make an argument for continuity there i don't know um do you want to talk about that piece yeah yeah i mean i love that piece i'm so happy with it's it it's a beautiful and piece yeah it seems like there's not a lot of continuity with, you know, um, with the Eve Klein tokenized pieces or, or even with, uh, you know, the generative art piece that I did on, on art blocks. But it's funny that for so many people in this space that particularly the Digital Zones project was their introduction to my work because what they may not know is I love making stuff. Right, <laughs> like, right. I really love making stuff. And very few of my work would be, you know, really fall under the category of conceptual art. Mm. You know, I felt like it was really appropriate to kind of put on that hat when I was first entering blockchain space. Um, but I like making things. Mm. And I think that still, uh, you know, my work in public art really informs my approach to making, you know, everything now. Mm -hmm. And there's something like, you know, you talked about it being like allegorical mm -hmm. and narrative, that artwork. Mm -hmm. And it's funny, I didn't intend for any of these game art pieces to be that narrative, mm. right? I always think, like, I always start off thinking that they'll look a lot more like art. Mm. And one of the funny things is like, narrative is a big no-no in art like it's no, it really is right it's just like if you're doing any time-based media it's just like hey man ever since like um you know hey shout out to the recently passed canadian great michael snow uh, you know we love michael snow yeah avant-garde filmmaker like, like, um and and anti-narrative guy right like yeah yeah he's, a bit of, he's all about non-narrative avant-garde cinema that goes somewhere that you can't quite trace but i mean yeah what is it wavelength is the is the yeah the, exactly the classic and piece, it's like right? since wavelength and there's there's booms in the shot and the set moves and it's sort of like a badly done uh jacques tati film right that's kind of what that's, yeah. that's what wavelength was yeah yeah and so like we're not supposed to do narrative right, right? Actually, go off on a tangent. It is like, this is why actually, uh, like Christian Marclay's The Clock mm -hmm. is, I think, like one of the best 
time-based, I mean, time-based, I'm just saying it's kind of a pun, yeah. but it's, like, <laughs> it's one of the best time-based artworks yeah. because like he does so many smart cuts in that movie, right? Like just so many smart cuts. Mm. Um, like it's just a master, like, like it's a masterpiece of, of editing. Yeah. And to describe the film, it's lots of different moments of clocks or watch faces, right, from Hollywood movies stitched together in a way where you sort of see a connection by suggested by the editing that is actually not there, right? Yeah. So you get this kind of sense of, oh, my God, these things are – you get a kind of everything is connected vibe from the way that they're stitched together, right? That's that's the piece. Yeah. yeah. And you will – the edits will be like you'll almost start to construct a narrative in your head. You almost think like, oh, Michael J. Fox in the last movie is like the same character as Michael Douglas in this next clip. Yeah. And he's going to this location and then it'll fall apart like you can't hold a narrative that long so it gets to stay being art in a sense <laughs> and right? it's suggestive and mystical by that right like yeah. the rule is there you, you you have an intuition that there's a connection between these things but you can't quite pin down exactly what it is that you're compelled by right and that is sort yeah. of a, a key art mechanism right when you know or when you think you know why you're being moved or what's keeping you in the room then it sort of falls apart as an art piece somehow right it's, exactly yeah. So I started these pieces, you know, all these game art pieces, thinking like, oh, well, I, I can't do narrative, it won't be art. But it is just in the medium right. of making these games, it's there. Mm. Like, it's there to use. And I truly believe, and, and then, and I'll resist it for a little bit, and then I'll lean into it being narrative with these, because I'll start to convince myself, and I'm pretty sure this is true, that I think that actually the most subversive thing that you can do in the art world right now is be generous to the viewer, <laughs> right? Like, I actually think that's incredibly subversive. Do you mean pander to your um, clients? or Not pander. No. Not pander. No. No. I just mean like, yeah, be, be generous to the viewer. It was like this last piece of, and it took me a long time to have the confidence to do that, mm -hmm. right? Like, one of my last public art pieces, I was making is this large sculpture, mm -hmm. and it was, and it's this piece, and it's, it looks very much like new media mm -hmm. art. These two seven foot tall sculptures of iPhones, mm -hmm. okay, on a soccer field, and they're kicking a ball back and forth, right? <laughs> and they're kicking a ball back and forth, right? I made it during the pandemic when everybody was trying to interact like over Skype and whatnot. Right. Um, and, and, and it works. It's this big piece of heavy machinery tech art. It works. It's an actual ball that kicks back and so forth. So it's a kinetic sculpture. Culture in the shape of two giant iPhones that literally on a soccer field that, on a soccer field that literally kind of pivot to kick this ball between each other. Yeah. Well, it sounds kind of like an amazing object. Yeah. I mean, I was where I was can I go to see it. that? And, uh, it's, it's on my website on on Chan Gallery, but it's in public space also somewhere. Yeah, it was in a public space, and but as I was like in development of that, I was like, you want to know what? The most subversive thing I could do is just put two really cute kids on the phone. And I was like, I'm going to make it so there's kids on the phone. And these aren't going to be like, these kids are going to be really cute. And <laughs> again, there's something about like relative to the, like obviously relative to public art, that's what you would want to do. Mm. But like relative to the art world, it's just so not how things are done, mm. right? Like you're not supposed to provide that easy entry point. But I mean, then again, the most and, kind of market successful artists in the world whatever jeff coons uh does exactly that right and that's his algorithm right is affirm people's already existing instincts and make them feel good about what they already have yeah exactly exactly and it's the thing that we all of us in the art world still can't 
like reconcile. It's a thing that, that we really criticize him for. And look, you can definitely be justifiably critical about how much that is, you know, about being, you know, generous to the audience, how much of it is kitsch or whatever. But in some way, shape or form, it is that being generous to the audience is the most subversive thing that he's done. Sure. Okay. It's not taking all the money because a lot of artists take all the money. Right. It's not the fabrication process because a lot of artists use the fabrication process. Mm -hmm. It is the accessibility. The rest of us out here in the art world are just like, what is he doing? Do you know that <laughs> um, that art forum spread uh, that he did? Not the ads, right? These Jeff Koons, obviously well-known, commercial, uh, successful artist. Um, but like he did these quite early. I'm going to say either the late 80s or the early 90s. He did like a, like a spread in art forum, which is the leading journal of the time i guess um and certainly of the new york art world and um it has this kind of line a spread over several pages which is i think like affirm yourself reject criticality or something like that mm -hmm. and it has these kind of pictures in the background of like i think a catholic church and something i don't know like some other stuff i don't know if you know that spread but that's always one of my favorite um Kuhn's iterations because it's so explicit about the strategy, right? Mm -hmm. And and I think later on he obscures the strategy, but at that point in the career around the banality series, he's very explicit about the strategy. And I think he also relishes in the perversity of the strategy, right? I think some of the early attraction of a young Jeff Koons, if I can project, is that he is very perverse, that he's trying to be perversely affirmative. Mm -hmm. And later on, the affirmation takes a more pedestrian tone, right? And is much more obscured. It's less explicit. He's better at being the kind of company man later on. Um, not <laughs> to say that it's less uh, perverse, but it's less explicitly perverse. And I think that that little spread in art for him is like the kind of core manifesto of that early uh, moment. Yeah, I, I'm not familiar with that particular spread, but it jives like yeah. like it, it it meshes completely with you know interviews I've seen of him right. where he does that he does that great like television evangelist grin of his yeah. and he looks in the camera and he says my work is about letting people feel comfortable with who they are right. and the things that they like are okay. Right. Um, but back to Winslow Homer's croquet game. Yes, I I never want to be that perverse in terms of like that sort of catering or pandering. All of it is just to say that I think um, there's a level of being generous with the audience that is not that, mm. um, that is still, like, I think a little bit viewed with suspicion by the art world. Mm. The idea that, like, you might care about somebody having a good time with your artwork mm. is a little bit frowned about on the art in the art world. I'm not doing it at the Jeff Koons level. So, anyway, these games that I've made, like, yes, they're very narrative. You play them, you interact with them, and there's, like, a definite beginning and an end. And you can do things in the game that are fun. Mm -hmm. So in the work that you're referencing, it takes place inside a Winslow Homer painting, mm -hmm. which is situated in 1865, just following the end of the Civil War. Mm -hmm. And this painting depicts some presumably wealthy, let's say East Coast elites, or which I guess we would say Northern, uh, you know, uh, Union Territory elites playing croquet. And in this game, right, you can also be one of the women in this painting and you you play croquet and as you play croquet you are privy to overhearing a conversation that the men are having about whom they should admit as members into the croquet club which is of course like an elite social space mm. um you're privy to a conversation about whether they should invite you know neighbors who previously fought for the confederacy if they'll ever be allowed into the the croquet club mm. or if it's bad for business um things like and you'll hear them talking about how they use 
the elite space of the croquet club, all right, this playing field, as a space to advance their own business and social interests. And of course, one thing that you won't hear about is the, the women who have no lines of dialogue right. in, in the game. Right. So um, interesting. It's finally, kind of like a, so a, a, just a just a little piece of interpretation in there in a kind of a, a Rem Koolhaas sense. I feel like it's kind of like a um, a retroactive gossip session. <laughs> you know, yeah. If, uh, yeah. if Delirious New York is a retroactive uh, manifesto for a city, this is a sort of imagined retroactive gossip session that also has this kind of political overtones uh, oozing out of it, right? Oh my god! A retroactive—it's a retroactive gossip session of Reconstruction America. Yeah. Whew, somebody <laughs> signed me up for an NPR talk. Um, yeah. But yeah, that's what it is. But then it's also about leveraging the medium hmm. because it's a game, and I tried to make the game minimally, like at least a little bit fun. Hmm. And you click the balls, and you shoot the balls, and you get score, mm -hmm. and you can be kind of distracted from all this conversation. That is going on, right? Because, you know, a game is like, it's funny, games simultaneously serve two, like they can serve two opposing functions. Mm -hmm. They can be a distraction from this sort of important, you know, from the important social currents and politics of the day, or they can be structures for reinforcing those same structures right. and politics and ideologies. And sometimes both at the same and, time. Almost always to distract you from what is under curtain number one right. and usher in what is behind curtain number two. Yeah. That's uh, really amazing. And it is, I have had the experience of playing that game because I'm an owner of an edition of this game, which is, again, it, it does, it is an NFT. One buys it mm -hmm. like one would buy any other NFT where there's um, a file connected to an entry on the blockchain, et cetera, et cetera. So it, it mimics that same form. Can you talk about that actually? Because, like, um, you know, it's less explicit maybe in its structure about the fact that it is an nft than some mm -hmm. of your previous other works but obviously it is very important that it is one maybe you can draw those connections out sure so it is like in, in some of the previous works right like with the generative artwork that's referencing Saul Witt and the conceptual artwork that's referencing eve klein i'm interested in talking about the affordances that NFTs give to artists, right? To separate the commodity form and the experienced form. And, you know, that that has the benefit of creating a more liquid and efficient commodity form and liberating the experienced form to go and be, be different things, right. right? Because, you know, painting has been the most dominant form of artwork since, I don't know, since we've had an art market, because it's just the best commodity package, right? It's, it's fabulous. Just essentially because it packs flat. Yeah. That's essentially it. And so, you know, I've talked about that in other artworks, but now I do feel like this, you know, the whole scene is in a different space mm -hmm. and, you know, has absorbed this information really quickly. And I kind of don't need to talk about it anymore. I can just sort of take advantage of it. Right. And like a game is like, look, I believe that's a legitimate art form. Sure. It's, 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 this is an interactive artwork. You can do stuff with it. Would have been a pretty tough sell working with, you know, a gallery and Lord knows other artists, you know, have tried. Yeah. It'd be really hard to sell a thumb drive with this game on it. The other thing that would suck about selling this as a thumb drive with hardware on it is that only one person would get to play it. Right. Yeah. That coupling of the experienced form and the commodity form, where the experienced form must be equally as rare and unique, right, as a commodity form. It hurts both forms of yeah. it. Right? It hurts both. Mm -hmm. 
this is fantastic. So I can just take this interactive artwork and this is designed to run on a web browser. So anybody, you know, Simon, you said that you own one of these things. Anybody who is looking at your wallet, anybody who's looking at your art collection can play it. Right. They can play the whole thing. So I'm, I'm effectively a, a philanthropist that helps fund the thing rather than somebody gatekeeping entries to playing it. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, you own, you are one of like 450 people who own commercial and property rights to this artwork. Mm -hmm. So, you know, to use a term that you like, you can hedge on the future outcome of this being an, <laughs> an important historical. You see yeah. how I do my, yeah. my homework? Absolutely. Simon? Yeah. No, I have my speculative uh, option on this, uh, which yeah. is which is great. Yeah. Which is great. Not everybody wants that, but everybody should be able to do it. Mm -hmm. And this is like one of the challenges of art that has been in this medium. Mm -hmm. Like I was, you know, attending an artist talk by some other artists who work in interactive work, who make games. Mm -hmm. And I'm listening to these other critics and curators say, oh, and this game is a bold exploration of the intersection of X and Y. And it, it, it asks the viewer to ponder. And I just got it. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, okay, I guess I'll take your word for it. Like, cause I can't play this or I can't right. see this piece of video right. art, yeah. you know? So many of these pieces. Yeah, that's true. And I mean, it has been, you know, media art is very difficult to fund. It's, it's you know, especially if it's, if it wants to exist in the art domain first and have that as its primary audience, it's, it's a real structural problem. And it's great to see you release this. And also just the other day, uh, Jonas Lund released another piece, also a game, which is really yeah. amazing on with art blocks, actually, uh, where there's also yeah. like game mechanics where everybody can play, but there's various people that also are able to all, hold on to the speculative asset part of it. And one last thing of interpretation I want to say about that piece is, uh, like I said, I think it was allegorical. And just this year, one of the other successful and very visible cultural products that has come out and is talked about among the art world uh, a little bit has been um, this film, Triangle of Sadness. And I think that's also an allegorical film. Have you seen this film, Triangle? Oh, no, I'm so bad. This is where I'm out of my depth. Oh, no, 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 I haven't no. seen it's, this. Uh, I mean, it's a, one of the most popular films of, I guess, latter half of 2022. But um, it's about a bunch of people that get stuck on a cruise ship and one of them, uh, their two models uh, are the kind of central characters and there's a drunken Woody Harrelson driving the cruise ship and then they get crashed and, and then some of the racialized characters, which are the help on the ship, then suddenly get catapulted to political uh, visibility and power and then you know these various different positions are kind of played out um, but anyway I just saw I saw a connection between those two pieces Mitch where we've been talking for a very long time I feel like I could talk about this uh, and many many other things with you forever because you're such an incredible speaker also that's another thing that I think is really makes your art world zone very easy to inhabit um, as you're such a well, compelling you. speaker about it but um, let your listeners know I'm available for parties <laughs> yeah. well you can uh, yeah you're available for parties <laughs> but I will ask you um, to kind of close out this uh, for the last section of this conversation with a, a recital um, of of the poem that you've made for us the seed phrase um, which we will mint would you mind reading through your seed phrase uh, for us? Yes, I will, I will publicly state my seed phrase now. <clears throat> Abstraction, conceptualism, Klein, financialization, scarcity, abundance, experience, belief, Frasier, game, fiction, frame. 
Well, that's a very beautiful poem, then, and uh, and it gives me access to a lot that's uh, that's on your wallet. But uh, you know, uh, figuratively speaking, I notice in that list uh, we've definitely covered a lot of those terms uh, throughout our conversation. Mm-hmm. But uh, there's two artist names on that list: Eves Klein, right? So Klein mm-hmm. being one of them, um, and Andrea Fraser. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, obviously, uh, uh, viewers who um, or listeners who are familiar with your work and if you've listened to this conversation now know a great deal about your relationship to East Klein, but they don't know so much about your relationship to Andrea Fraser, who is an artist who was, I guess, started to be visible in the 1990s, who was involved in a, in a kind of micro-movement called con- Context Art, um, <laughs> who did a bunch of performance in and out of institutions and kind of interrogated institutions. She's often, I guess, given as an example of um, institutional critique as a, as a movement as well, as mm-hmm. Context Art, depending on, on where you're coming at it from. Can you say a few things about your relationship to Andrea Fraser? Well, I think that she's just such a fascinating lens, like through which to reevaluate a lot of the topics that, you know, I mean, we've already discussed, right? Most specifically, the whole idea of an artwork as a vessel of belief, mm-hmm. right? One of the ideas that Andrea Fraser returns to, like repeatedly in her lectures and writings, is the idea, and I'm, I'm going to paraphrase here, this is, you know, almost exactly what she says, that the entire art world is a mechanism for the production of belief, mm-hmm. right? And she makes it very explicit that belief is the true product of the art world mm. and that it requires uh, it, it requires a very specific division of labor to do. Mm-hmm. And that's why there's important that there is an artist and a curator and another curator and then a critic, et cetera, right? That this is all one mechanism that produces this and that art is, um, you know, very good at this. So this is all, another fascinating lens to look at crypto, which I've also said is just like one um, is underpinned entirely by collective belief. Mm-hmm. And but I think it's also interesting because she likes to make explicit those mechanisms in the art world. And when I look at the crypto art world in <laughs> all its positives and and negatives, and you know, make no mistake, I've like I've you know I've said here, well, it's not that different from the regular art world, but there are certainly lots and lots of unseemly parts of the NFT art sure. world. If you're going to be broad with the term, you could say even most of it is unseemly. That would be fine, right? But looking at it is fascinating. Like I love looking at the you know the the Twitter influencers, right? Yeah. And, you know, the sort of Ponzi designers, right? And, like, looking at it as an attempt to create a different mechanism for that production, one that is more dependent on the abundance of market signals mm. and information about market data, right? But it is the same thing. It is the attempt to build that same, like, it's not attempt to build this the same mechanism, but it's attempted to build a different mechanism, which offers the same um, the same final result, mm. which is to produce a, a a sense of belief that is commodifiable. Mm-hmm. And then I also think that as an artist, right, what we have right now is the opportunity to, like you said, context art. Right, that is the moment now that. Artists have the ability to engage with, or maybe even downright control, so much of the context around their work, hmm. right? They can take authorship. It's like, if we think about, I've, I've written about this somewhere as the idea that the artwork is this center, 
right, of this whole solar system around which these other things orbit, right? It's the center around which criticism orbits, around which curation orbits, and around which market signals orbit. And it's equally valid to define that thing at the center by looking at what it actually Mm -hmm. is, by saying, oh, this is, you know, these are the properties of the nugget in the center of that solar system. But you can also basically infer it by looking at what orbits around it, right? You can deduce the gravitational pull all right, that, that, that is affecting those things, you, you can look at context or the thing itself. And it becomes, and there are a number of artists in the NFT space who basically, you know, that thing at the center is essentially a vacuum. It's a void. Um, and they just get straight to the business of designing those satellites orbiting around it, creating the illusion, the sensation of something at the center, right? And it's, and I'm not here to say that that's, a, not a valid way to do things. Yeah, right. right. That's uh, that makes a lot of sense within my knowledge of yeah exactly where um, Andrea Fraser resonates with all of those points. Um, Mitch, I am going to close this conversation now. Thank you so much for um, taking the time to speak to me today. I just think that all of the points that you pulled on um, resonate a lot with this podcast but also my interests and i feel like i've learned a lot about yeah even more deeper connections uh, between the projects you've done and the context that we're acting in so thank you very very much for that um where can people best find your work if they are curious where can they first discover what you're up to sure you can find me on all the social medias at mitchell f chan and you can look at my work on my website at chan.gallery. Don't go to mitchellfchan.com because you will find a gambling website, believe it or not, actually. Go to my socials and find a gambling <laughs> website. <laughs> go to my NFT art to find a gambling website. It's quite amazing. That's not an artwork of yours, right? Because I did go to mitchellfchan.com <laughs> and it literally is an online casino. I don't know if you know that. but uh, Wow. Yeah, it's, um, I and- should claim authorship over yeah, you really it should like because found artwork. Also, the blue paper lists uh, mitchellfchan.com as the place oh, to find out about zones. And, um, and right. I did that in preparation and then found this amazing <laughs> casino website. So, okay. Yeah. Well, I hope you had fun. You probably had more fun on the casino website than you would have on my portfolio. No, page. that's not true. But, um, <laughs> but yeah. Okay. Thank you very much, Mitch, and speak soon. Okay. Thanks, Simon. That's it for this episode of Seed Phrase. Thanks so much to Mitch for embracing the call to reflect on the boundaries of his precise and literate practice, which for me is so rich in its joyful follow through of some of the most innovative financial artistic propositions of the 20th century. I find his economic poetry and light touch between gaming, tokens, and the social world a true value add. Seed Phrase is generously supported by the New Institute in Hamburg, was recorded at Studio Yacht in Berlin, and is edited by FX1 in Hamburg. The music featured in this podcast is by Amnesia Scanner from their Web3 project Scammer, which was released as a series of CC0 NFTs. Thanks again to the New Institute for providing this space, and to you for listening to these conversations.